Welcome to ReachMD. This medical industry feature titled Examining Cerebral Embolic Protection is sponsored by Boston Scientific. Here are your guests, Dr. Hemelgata and Vijay Iyer. I'm Hemelgata. I'm a structural interventional cardiologist at UPMC Pinnacle in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I'm Vijay Iyer. I'm an interventional cardiologist and structural interventionalist at the Gates Vascular Institute and Buffalo General Medical Center in Buffalo, New York. Welcome to the Structural Heart to Heart podcast. Uh, today we'll be talking about cerebral embolic protection, specifically as it relates to transcatheter aortic valve replacement. We'll be going over some of the clinical considerations, the clinical evidence bed, some of the economic considerations with regards to adoption of the technology, and where we see the future going. So Vijay, can we just kick it off with uh, what do you think about stroke in, in TAVR? Is this a problem, and uh, what were your thoughts around it? Uh, it's interesting. We've evolved in our thought process about stroke and TAVR from the early days of Partner to where we are right now. Uh, when we came out with the first iteration of Partner, we thought that stroke was a real problem. The rates were pretty high. Uh, since then, the stroke rates have declined. But the reality is that of all the different things we do with TAVR, with all the benefit we create, the most devastating complication is stroke. I mean, nothing changes your quality of life like a stroke. Uh, not just the cost of healthcare subsequent to that, but to the individual and the family, it is a huge burden. So when you look at stroke, while the rates have dropped down, the total number of cases we do have gone up. So in reality, even a single stroke in your center in a year, if you do 100 cases and you have one or two strokes, which is what you would predict right now, mm -hmm. I think it is still pretty devastating. And anything you can do to reduce that rate, especially as we go to younger individuals, I think is absolutely critical. Uh, Vijay, when you think about periprocedural stroke, do you think that the people in our community actually understand the gravity of this problem? Um, I'm not sure everybody does. I think to some extent we are to blame this because we have tried to tell people that the risk of stroke with TAVR is declining, it is lower than surgery, but at the same time, even that small amount of stroke is an unacceptable amount in my mind. So anything you can do to reduce it is extremely important. One of the hot topics are these low-risk patients. So we had two large randomized control trials, approval of commercial low-risk that happened with the FDA just a little while ago. Um, does that change the role maybe of how you think or does it change the way you think about stroke? in TAVR patients? Um, I think with the low-risk trials, uh, while the stroke rates are low, it's extremely important as we start to treat these low-risk patients who are much younger, we have to strive to get to a stroke rate that's 0%. Yeah. Uh, I think that's critical. As what, and what do you think about the body of evidence with regards to stroke and transcatheter aortic valve replacement with regards to neurologically adjudicated stroke versus non? Yes. Uh, every trial has had that caveat to some extent. The trials that were not neurologically adjudicated, that means a neurologist investigated the patient before and after the tablet and examined them, the stroke rates were higher. Yeah. Uh, we found the same thing with surgical ABR. When we started to adjudicate the events, we suddenly realized, oh, my God, the, the rates are much higher. Mm -hmm. So uh, clearly not every site does that, and that's why I think some of the numbers in the TVT registry probably don't reflect the true number of strokes because right. you're not required to do And regardless that. of TVT registry numbers, even with dropping risk indications, the stroke rate has remained Remained about the same. Yeah. And I mean, what we found out is that um, stroke rates have remained about the same across the risk spectrum. Mm -hmm. Not only that, they've actually, uh, stroke doesn't discriminate. You could be an operator who does 50 cases, or That's you could right. be an operator who does 1,000 no cases. No volume basis. It's not a volume basis yeah. to it. So Vijay, tell us about your experience with the Sentinel Cerebral Protection System. When did you start using it? 
and what was that trajectory like? We were not in the clinical trial for Sentinel, but the moment it was commercially approved and the FDA approval, and when we saw the data, and actually, for me personally, the most compelling piece was seeing the filters and the debris that we were collecting. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you had a clinical stroke or not, I can't imagine clinically that that debris in the brain can be good for anybody. Right. Uh, so we decided as an, as an organization and as a team that despite the financial risk that we would go forward full on. Since the trial didn't help us differentiate who would be high risk and who would be low risk, we had no scientific basis to say we could use it in this population and not in those. It really is an all or none type of adoption. That is correct. Yeah. So we decided we were going to do all mm -hmm. tavern and our, our policy since that time has been that everybody who we can anatomically get a sentinel filter in for tower, we do it. When you were making your pitch to administration for adoption of the device, I mean, clearly there's an economic challenge there because there's no additional reimbursement for most cases. Uh, so I'm just wondering, what was that pitch like for you? Uh, the economics are always tough, especially early on because contribution margins per case were not very large. Uh, so we learned to do a couple of different things. We realized that if we need to have some of these new tech add-ons that we think are important and important for our patients, mm -hmm. then we have to tighten up in other places. Sure. So that means we have to get more efficient. We have to figure out ways to keep our length of stay down, keep our complication rates down, keep our pacemaker rates down. Mm -hmm. So all of that builds into the argument wherein now you can look at the whole picture and say, this is an important technology that we believe reduces our complication rate, improves the quality of life for our patients, and therefore it's important. And I, I did not have much trouble with our administration when we pitched it in those terms. That's great. And then did you see a growth in volume of your program at large because of the adoption of Sentinel, or can you relate any type of volume effect there? Early on, I don't know that we had a growth because it was definitely a differentiator for us. Mm -hmm. For the longest time, and actually even now, we are one of the few centers that have what we call a sentinel for all policy. Yep. Um, we don't discriminate, everybody gets a sentinel. Mm -hmm. We have had people who come to us specifically with the question, hey, you guys I hear use the sentinel, I'd rather have Tower at your site rather than go somewhere else. Right, and was there a dedicated marketing campaign that you used? Oh, we never did a dedicated marketing campaign towards patients, but we did focus on referring doctors, referring yeah. cardiologists, talking about the problem in the context. It's very important to define the context because you don't want the message to be that stroke is a big problem in Tavern. but the right. same token, you do want to emphasize the fact that your goal here is to reduce stroke rates to minimal to zero. No doubt, and when you were having that referring provider communication, what are some pieces of data that you may have referred to or what's that evidence base? I think it's important to talk about the IDE trial because you have to start there. Yeah. I think you have to make the point that the, the important point there with the DWI MRI hits, the filter data, yes, the endpoints were probably not what we looked at, but then when you look at the volume of strokes and how it's coming down, maybe it's going to be hard to do that in any trial. But the same token, the question is very simple. When you see the DWMRI data, when you look at the filter data and you put yourself in the patient's shoes and say, do I want this in my brain or do I not? If I have a loved one who's going to have a tablet, sure. am I going to put a sentinel or not? I think the the argument is sort of, you know, you, you made your argument. Yeah, right. You don't really need to you know, make any more arguments at that point, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's a critical argument, though. So, okay, clinical data, um, you know, we can, we can choose to kind of parse that out. And uh, if we look at the totality of evidence as it's building, I think there's more and more favor with regards to stroke protection with this particular device. And, so, and, and you know, you've done, you've done partnered with the, your site with Cedars and others yeah. who published that data. And, yeah. You know, in addition to the ID trial, there's now single centers, multi-centers, multi-centers, meta-analysis, yeah. all of which 
favor the use of cellular mm -hmm. protection. Agreed, we don't have true randomized control data yet, but should that stop you from using it? I am pretty sure not. So then the cl clinical evidence is one thing, and then the economic impact, which you touched on earlier, so I wanted to dwell on that a little bit. Um, so, you know, obviously we're dealing with limited contribution margins, especially at non-academic medical mm -hmm. centers um, that are maybe in uh, less affluent areas uh, where the wage indices are a little bit on the lower side. Mm -hmm. um, I think your center and my center probably share that. Okay. And so uh, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, how, how does that how does that conversation work? I mean, you Did made you that share? argument very, very nicely in terms of uh, looking at the cost of care, not just for TAVR, but for TAVR and its complications. Okay. And you got to ask yourself, if I'm a center that does 100 to 150 cases and we get two devastating strokes, what is the cost of care for those two strokes? Right. And how does that impact the institution? Not just for that episode of care, but for the continuum of care for that individual, okay. how is that? I mean, it's not just the, the acute hospitalization as the ICU stays, it's the subsequent imaging, the rehab, all of that. What yeah. is the cost of that and how do you factor that into saying, I could have prevented that and what is the cost of prevention versus the cost of actually taking care of the stroke? Absolutely true. And, and TAVR's, one of TAVR's greatest strengths is its ability to lean up in comparison to surgery and provide efficient disposition strokes would definitely go against that to a large degree. So I think economically there is an argument to be made for the device. So it's very interesting. Um, with regards to the impact of Sentinel clinically at your facility, since you've taken on Sentinel, what type of clinical um, results have you seen? Um, our stroke rates were sort of in the one and a half, two percent range when we first started. So you were pretty low to start. They were pretty low to start. Yeah. Um, but in that transition over the last couple of years, we've gone from a site that, you know, in 2011 or 12, we did about 28 cases to this year, we'll do more than a 400 cases. Yeah. So when you look at that throughput of cases, um, we've had the same rates of stroke. Actually, our stroke rates are, I can't even remember the last time we had a devastating stroke mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. institution. So it has become a a real rarity. I mean, it, if it happens, it's a big deal yeah. for us now. And if it, if it happens once a year, it's a big deal. You know, do we have uh, do we have evidence that the Sentinel in every case had debris? Early on, we used to look at the filter in every case, and in every case, we used to find it. So we stopped looking. We said, okay, that's an assumption. We're going to catch right. something. You know, sometimes it's small, sometimes it's large. Uh, and we're going to use it. And our stroke rates are definitely lower than they were before. Right. At least the rates of debilitating stroke, definitely you would agree, right? And, and I mean, I think that that's something that is detectable. And so that brings us to kind of where the field is going. So uh, with the current data in the Sentinel IDE, that, that did not really get its primary endpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that future clinical trial work is needed in this field? And, and what would that consist of? I think it's important. I think, yes, I agree. I think it'd be great to have randomized clinical trial data because that would help us move into the realm of guidelines. I think I do agree with that. Uh, but the same token, uh, is stroke the real endpoint we've got to be looking at. I'm not 100% convinced about that because a lot of this microscopic debris may not cause a clinical event which you can recognize as a stroke. Right. But when you have 100 of these particles or 1,000 of these particles going into the microvasculature, yeah. I wonder what it does to your cognitive ability. Have you noticed a difference in the acuity, mental acuity of your patients yes. since using Sentinel? My Val Clinic coordinator likes to call it the foggy brain syndrome, or yeah, the fuzzy right. head syndrome. Mm -hmm. And she would always tell us that there's this population of patients who come back after TAVR and they're fine. 
there is no detectable neurological deficit, right. but they're just off cognitively. Right. They call themselves, I feel fuzzy in my brain. I had a professor tell me, you know, I was teaching in the middle of my course, I kind of forgot the material that I've been teaching That can be quite years. acute as well. I've noticed that. Yes. It can be quite acute, and then it also last for some period of time That's afterwards. Correct. And we have not seen that since we started using Sentinel. Yeah, I agree. I have to say. Yeah. You know, and we, we asked this question very carefully because for a brief period, I had a student doing a neurocognitive analysis on every patient wow. pre- and post-tavern. Mm-hmm. You know, the problem with neurocognitive analysis in 85-year-old is that sometimes it's difficult to completely do it. But as we go to the lower uh, patient population pool, I think... Neurocognitive evaluation of these patients in the trial is going to be extremely important and long-term follow-up is important because we may not see the results for two years or three years. It may be long-term. You know, the cognitive decline may be subtle but definite, and we have to find ways that we can detect it. Mm -hmm. So put it together for us then. So we've talked about kind of the clinical evidence base, where that evidence base needs to go, the economic barriers to entry, where those economics can kind of be negotiated. Mm -hmm. Are there any other pieces to the Sentinel experience that you hold dear as a person, and how has it kind of made you feel about transcatheter aortic valve replacement as a therapy in general? Um, If you're an operator of any kind, as an interventional cardiologist, you always remember your most devastating complications, right? And for TAVR, it's the ruptures and the strokes. Those are the things I remember the most. You know, we've done 1,500-plus TAVRs, but I remember every patient who had a stroke and I remember every patient who had a rupture. And it changes how you, how you look at this therapy because you're there to do good, and that's one of those things that really stays with you. To be able to walk into a procedure with the confidence to say that I can take one complication off the table yeah. with a device that is simple to deploy, easy to use, not complicated, clearly shown to be safe in the trial, mm-hmm. um, I think that gives you a lot of comfort in doing that procedure. You can walk up to your patients and say, listen, I agree there's a calcified valve, there's plaque in your, uh, in your arch, there's a lot of things we can do that can potentially cause a stroke, but the same token, I have a very effective tool that during the procedure I can minimize your risk of stroke. I think that gives you a lot of confidence as an operator. That's a great way to sum it up. Uh, so the last question is more of kind of an emotional tilt on things. Describe kind of what you would feel if you had a loved one that was undergoing transcatheter aortic valve replacement and the physician was contemplating using Sentinel or not. Mm-hmm. Take me through what that would I mean, be. I mean, I, I tell my partners, I tell my referring physicians, put yourself in the shoes of the person going for the valve. Right. Put yourself or your loved one and say, what do I want for myself in that circumstance? And if the answer is that I don't want the debris in the brain, it's a no-brainer. It's the same answer for everybody else. You don't want to put anybody else at risk. Excellent. Uh, yeah, I think that, that about caps it up. Thank you for your time. Thank you I think much. this has been a great conversation. We've uncovered a lot. Uh, so I wanted to close this segment of the Structural Heart to Heart podcast. I'm Hamil Gata, Vijay Iyer. Uh, thank you very much. You've been listening to ReachMD. This program was sponsored by Boston Scientific. If you missed any part of this discussion, visit www.reachmd.com slash industry feature. This is ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.